Heavenly Father, it is an incredible privilege to um, look at your word, to think about the Bible. Um, we pray that you would be here with us, you would open our minds, open our hearts, um, help us to see the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so uh, we're doing a, a Bible survey series, and we get to the New Testament at last. And uh, we're, we're going through, we're, we're doing a quick survey of each book, but before we get to uh, Matthew, I just wanted to quickly set the story up, because there is a 400-year gap between when we last left the Old Testament, which is Malachi. Malachi is written roughly around here. Um, and then when God speaks again with John the Baptist, right? So John the Baptist would be somewhere around here. And in between this, these two periods is called the intertestamental period. Um, but we actually know quite a bit about this period, not just from um, um, scholars outside of Israel, but within Israel itself. Um, we have the Apocrypha, and we have something called the Pseudo-Epigrapha. Hi, welcome. Here's handouts. Um, and so... Let me just quickly start with, with, the, with these two sets of documents, the Apocrypha. Who has heard of the Apocrypha? Yes, okay. Who has heard of the Pseudo-Epigrapha? It just means, pseudo means like false or like, you know, not real. So the, 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 there are a series of writings that are supposedly attributed to people, but they're really under like pseudonyms. But we have a ton of information about this period. Hey, welcome, join us. Um, and so... The Protestants look at these documents as interesting, sometimes encouraging, often encouraging, often uh, helpful, certainly historically valuable, but not canonical, right? So let me just write this down, that big word down, canonical. Um, it comes from the word canon, which means rule, right? So we have the canonical Bible, right? which is 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. But um, our Catholic friends include the Apocrypha, right? I forget how many books, but things like First and Second Maccabees, um, there's like Tobit, and there's like Bell and the Dragon, all kinds of interesting, again, books. Does anyone know why we as Protestants don't look at the Apocrypha books as part of the canon? Alright, so the reason, well, let me just start with the reason why the Catholics include it, right? The Catholics include it because um, during this period right here, there was a book called the Septuagint. So this was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they included the Apocrypha. And so when the cat and so the Septuagint was the Bible of all the Greek speaking Jews, and it's actually quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes from it fairly extensively. And then when the Old Testament was again translated um, into Latin, the uh, the they they picked up a lot of these books, and so it just got carried along. And so the Apocrypha was always in sort of like the translations of the Old Testament among the uh, Latin Christians, right? The reason why Protestants reject the Apocrypha is because it's not part of the Hebrew canon. Maybe I have opened up a big can of worms, Hebrew canon. Okay? So, 
This is the Hebrew Bible that everyone accepted, and the Hebrew Bible never included the Apocrypha. So this is the Bible that Jesus had, right? Jesus never quotes from the Apocrypha, and so this is why we as we as Protestants don't accept the Apocrypha. How does canon form? Canon is one of those things that are very hard to explain. Um, canon doesn't happen with a decree. It's not like there's a council or there's a group of scholars that say, these are the official books that God has divinely inspired. It is through consensus, tradition, and everyone just accepts it, right? Like, why do we have the 27 books in the New Testament? There's two schools of thought. One school of thought is, oh, it's the Council of Nicaea. I do not agree with that school of thought because the Council of Nicaea was picking up what was already commonly accepted in the church. How did the 27 books come to be accepted? It was just always accepted. It's one of those answers that are very hard to explain, right? Why is the Bible the Bible? Because it's always been the Bible. Because the moment the Bible was written, everyone just said, oh, this is the Bible, this is the Word of God. And this is, this is how the Hebrew canon came to be as well. There was no committee, there was no group that formed it. Everyone just knew it was just accepted. Is there any questions about canon? Yes, Nate. What about other books, other holy books, and other religious texts that can claim the same thing? So then you have the division because it can't be... This is a good question on the issue of canon. I could spend like four Sunday school lessons on it, right? Because the way um, the way Protestants understand canon is that it's self-attesting. So the Bible says this: "I'm the Word of God," and then we, as God's people, hear the Word of God and we recognize the voice of God and we say, "This is true." That's how it happens. So it's not based on human authority; it's based on divine authority. God speaks to us and we say yes. Any question? Jeff, you look very puzzled. <laughs> no? No, I'm not puzzled. I think that, that it's a topic you could spend many times. Many, many, many hours on, yes. There are many self-testing books as well. But the yeah. Catholic can say, well, I hear that book that, that feels divine to you. This is true. Um, so there are, so it's not purely <coughs> subjective. Right, so is that what you're asking? Yeah, doesn't it sound purely subjective? So the Protestants would say, well, there are further tests. Um, so why not the Apocrypha? Because Jesus never accepted Apocrypha. It's part of the Hebrew canon. Uh, it's not part of the Hebrew canon. Um, there are uh, internal tests, like for example, when the tw- when the twenty-seven books. So a lot of the early church fathers, they're looking back and they're saying, why do we have these twenty-seven books? Okay, hmm. So a lot of times they're saying, well, they're there's either apostolic authorship or apostolic. they're within the apostolic circle. They're written very, very early. There's like all these high standards. And the books that didn't make it, and there are other books, right? Like, you know, um, um, there's like a letter from Clement. There's like, a, I, I'm like forgetting these other worthy, interesting, valuable books that never made the cut. And they didn't make the cut because they didn't reach that high standard that the early church fathers after the fact, rec- looked at the 27 books and recognized something high and elevated. Anyways, let's move on, right? So this period is called the Second Temple. Of- okay, so this period is called Second Temple Judaism. Um, Anybody know why it's called Second Temple period? It's the temple that Herod built. No, close. It's a good guess. So this period is called Second Temple, and here's Herod. Herod did build it. Um, 
It was built, it's kind of a shoddy job. Sahara did a really bang up good job. He did it for a specific reason. He did it because the, the prophecy of the Messiah was that the Messiah would rebuild the temple. So he says, I'm the Messiah. Here's this enormous temple. Therefore, look, look at I have legitimacy. But no one, of course, accepted it, but they liked the temple. <laughs> and, anyone know why it's called Second Temple? Period? There's a temple after the exile. Yes. So remember what happened in the exile. When the Babylonians came, what did they do to Jerusalem and the temple specifically? They destroyed it, right. So when they came back from the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah, that period, under Persian rule, they rebuilt the temple. Okay, so it's called Second Temple. And then when was the temple again destroyed? That's right. So this whole period is called Second Temple Judaism period. And the reason why this is a very important period is because it helps us to understand it the New Testament. And here's the, so here's the whole point. Okay, all of this is historical detail, but here's the main point. When the temple was built under Persian rule, because what happened was the Babylonians conquered, but then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And then so Cyrus said, okay, you can all go back home. So the Jews go back home, and then they immediately start building what? The most important thing in Jewish life? Temple. So they build a temple, right? When they build a temple, um, there's a very famous passage in Nehemiah very interesting. It says that when they built the temple, uh, some of the elders who had remembered the glory of the old temple started weeping. But the people were so happy and so excited about the temple being built. They were rejoicing. And so those two sounds were intermixed. Right? There was the sound of weeping and the sound of rejoicing. And it says you couldn't tell the difference because they were inner, inner, interlaced. That sensation captures this period. Because you're so happy the exile is over. Exile is incredibly traumatic. People are not just being killed, but they're being they're being expelled from the promised land. Remember, that's incredibly traumatic because that was the curse of breaking the Mosaic Covenant. Now they're back, but they're back, but it isn't the glory that they expected, right? Because all the prophets were speaking about how when God brings his people back, right, he will rebuild the temple, right? All the nations will stream, right? Israel will rise again, right? It will be this glorious period of peace and prosperity and flourishing. And none of that came true. It only partially came true, but it didn't fully come true. And so it's a period of, like, like, you know, what if I said, oh, there's going to be a great prophecy that I'm going to build this enormous statue, everyone. Oh, and here is the statue. And we're all like, <laughs> right? So join us. Um, you can probably use the, uh, the fold-up chairs. So... That's what's happening, right? Everyone's looking at this crumbling temple and they're mourning. And so what are they doing? They're waiting for another return from exile, a greater return, because the prophecies were not kept. And look, through this whole period, what's happening? There's Persian rule, and then Alexander the Great comes, and then there's a long period of Greek rule, and then there's a very brief hundred-year period of independence under Judas Maccabee, right? That's what First and Second Maccabees are about. But even that period is not at all, even remotely close to the glory of, of Solomon. And then, immediately, again, Pompey conquers and then Roman rule and then Herod the Great. Herod the Great basically, you know, he understood the political winds and so he kissed the Romans' butts and then the Romans said, okay, you could be our client king because the Romans don't like to do direct rule. A lot of problems in direct rule, right? Much better to have a puppet king who has some sort of legitimacy with the people and then you, you have your hand up him and you control him, right? That's what Herod the Great was. Herod the Great was the puppet of the Roman rulers, right? Everyone knew this. So they're under Roman rule. And so that's when the New Testament begins, That under that context. Do you guys all understand? Right? 
Second temple has already been built, but it's insufficient. Long period of conquest, and they're waiting. When is the Messiah coming? When is God going to reveal his promises? When is he going to fulfill his word that everything's going to be restored and made beautiful? Okay? So, uh, let's go to the Gospels. Uh, next subtitle. Um, so, the four Gospels, uh, there's a lot of misperception <coughs> that people think these were the first written documents in the New Testament. It's actually the very last documents in the New Testament. The very first documents were the letters of Paul and generally all the epistles. And then the Gospels written after the epistles had already been written. Does that make sense? So a lot of times, like you'll hear in popular media, oh, you know, the, um, the uh, what is it, uh, Jesus, the whole idea that Jesus is God. This is an invention of the church. It was made up. You see it in the epistles. But if you go back to the Gospels, you see, especially if you knock out John, because John's unreliable, you just look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, you don't see Jesus saying, I'm God, I'm God. But people... People don't forget, people are not remembering something crucial and historical, which is that gospel were written after the Pauline epistles. Pauline epistles contain one of the strongest statements of Jesus' divinity at all, anywhere, right? So why were the gospels written? The gospels were written because the first generation of eyewitnesses were starting to die down. And the, the life of Jesus, the ministry, the words of Jesus had been carried around the church orally, Right? So you have living witnesses. So you have Peter in your church. Peter Bog, let me tell you about Jesus, right? People are like, oh, tell us, right? People were starting to die out. So they started to write it down, encapsulate it in document, in, in writing, so they could be carried on, right? Why did they put it before the apostle, though? Why Second. did they put it in the first two chapters? Before the epistles. Yeah. Oh! Uh, that is a good question. The the because you know how you say you know this is the way that it's written yeah and then people did the, go the, back and say hey <laughs> is this meat in this day yeah the can the, the order of the canon is like I, I vaguely remember reading about this we're not hundred percent sure even why the order of the canon is the order of the canon that is the order is not canonical what is canonical is the books who arranged the order somebody arranged it somebody sat down just like the versifications right like all the verse numbers. It, it was some medieval guy who like said it'd be really I mean, was, when the printing revolution happened it'd be really helpful if we had verses to so he just sat and wrote down all the verses and now we're stuck with his versifications right but that itself is not canonical um, so so uh, I mean it makes sense right because it's time wise right the gospels come before the epistles right so so uh, let's let's begin so the story begins in the context of Roman rule and let me just read Luke 2 or let me have uh, Dave read Luke 2 for me yeah. Right, so remember, right, the context of when the story, the New Testament story begins, the story of Christianity begins, is in the context of what? Roman rule. Okay? And let me just set it up. I know I said you're going to read it, but let me just talk a little bit more. Um, what happened in this period? Okay, so I just read a long biography on Julius Caesar, so it's, it's very fascinating, right? What happened is the Roman Republic was starting to crumble, and you hear you have Julius Caesar, he basically becomes. The, the ruler, right, the king of the Roman Empire, but then um, the Roman Senate kills him, at, but before he becomes the king, he fights this huge war, he actually fights Pompey, this huge civil war, this massive traumatic experience, think about the American Civil War, right, this is what happened in the Roman, uh, Roman Republic slash Empire, they had this massive civil war, and then Caesar emerges, he becomes king, then a few, like three years later, he's assassinated, then 
another civil war, this time between his followers, right? There's Octavian, Augustus, who becomes his adopted son with the, uh, the, the, the senatorial army. They fight. And then Augustus wins, or, or Octavian wins. And then there's another civil war between Mark Antony, who was Caesar's lieutenant, like his second in command. He fights, and it's the whole story, right? He goes to Cleopatra, right? They form, like, this alliance. So then there's another... So this is, like, 30 years of civil war. You have to understand that. 30 years of, of massive destruction, death, killing in the Roman Empire. And then finally, Octavian emerges the one sole winner... He is Caesar Augustus, the first Roman Empire. And do you know what they called him? They called him Prince of Peace. Right? They called him um, Lord and Savior. They called him, when they announced the news of his victory, they, everyone said, this is the euangelion. This is the good news. Because years and years, decades and decades, people can't even remember when there was peace, and he brought the peace. So he is uh, 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 the Prince of Peace. And they called him the Son of God, because Julius Caesar was declared God. And he is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So if you see coins of, of, of Caesar Augustus, it says son of God. All right, now read. Read the audacious audacity, <laughs> just the, the, the craziness of Luke 2. All right, Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, this was the first generation when... First registration. Registration when Queen... Uh, yeah, Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born a day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. All right. Do you guys now see what what's happening here? Two kings are being juxtaposed. Who is the first king that's being compared? Caesar Augustus. Right? With all of his glory, he's called the Son of God. He's called the Prince. He, Prince of Peace is called Lord and Savior. He's the good news. But then here you have, juxtaposed to him, that is the farce. That is like the clown king, Augustus. The real king <coughs> is in this little town of Bethlehem, in this incredibly humble setting, in a manger, in swaddling cloth, and that's Jesus. Does that make sense? That, now we understand. Why were the Christians hunted down and killed and persecuted by the Romans? Because the Christians claimed something that was incredible, that Jesus is the universal Lord. Not Caesar, but Jesus. So that's the context, Okay. So, why were the Gospels written? John 20, let me just read it for you. Um, These were all written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? Um, Synoptics, uh, we're going to just go through first uh, the first three Gospels, which are called the Synoptics. They're called Synoptics because sin means same, optics is look or view. Um, All three of those Gospels are very similar, right? Um, I'm sure you've heard this before. They contain the same stories, many of the same stories, in the same sequence. A lot of times, even the same wording, you'll find, right? Um, John, the Gospel of John, is like a bizarre, weirdo gospel compared to the synoptics. So we'll talk about that later. But let's start with Gospel of Matthew. Um, Matthew was written by um, Matthew, also known as Levi. He's the tax collector, so he's one of the disciples of Jesus. 
It was written uh, to a Jewish audience, and we can tell this because he has all kinds of places where like he ex- demonstrates that he's being sensitive to a Jewish audience. For example, the main one is Kingdom of Heaven, right? Every, all the other Gospels call it Kingdom of God. He calls it Kingdom of Heaven. Heaven is kind of like a, a, a circumlocution. It's just like a, like a euphemism. You don't want to say God's name because it's too holy, so you say Kingdom of Heaven, right? Um, by the way, I'm going to cover the distinctives. I'm not going to cover what the Gospels are about. I would say if the Gospels are about anything, it's about how King Jesus has come to restore Israel, right? And to renew the earth and, and to redeem the earth. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the distinctives, right? I'm so, huh? Sorry, I'm, what, uh, how is that in a Jewish slant? Kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of heaven, yeah. So you don't want to ever say God. Because <laughs> God's name is so holy. You can't just like fritterly say the name. So you say heaven instead. So kingdom of heaven is just another way to say kingdom of God. It's a Jewish way to say kingdom of God. Oh, okay. Um, so one distinctive is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Um, for example, we have two genealogies, Luke's genealogy. Actually, John, you can argue, arguably say, has a genealogy as well, because it goes all the way back to creation, right, in the beginning of the word. Um, but Luke's genealogy, does anyone remember how far back does Luke's genealogy go? To who? God. No. Adam. Well, yeah, yes, to God. You're right. No, that's true. God. Adam is the son of God, right? It goes to Adam, right? In Matthew's genealogy, it doesn't go all the way th- that far back. It goes only back to Abraham, right? So obviously, what is Matthew saying? Matthew's <coughs> saying Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and promises. Um, and so the third line, uh, that it may be fulfilled, is a favorite phrase. Actually, the, the word fulfilled, you see all throughout all four Gospels, but Matthew goes crazy with this word. Yes? Wait, so what's the significance of him being the son of Adam or descendant of Adam? Uh, Luke, right? Because Luke, Luke, Luke is yes. Luke agrees with Matthew that Jesus is the unique fulfillment of Israel's hopes and promises. Yeah. But Luke goes beyond, and Luke says this is this is for all mankind. Luke's special interest is not just for the Jews, but it's for Gentiles. We'll talk oh, about that later. Um, fulfilled, right? Matthew <laughs> talks almost like every other story. Matthew has to throw in this phrase so that it might be fulfilled, right? And this is a very important word. I have. I literally have a book like this huge on just this concept of fulfillment, right? It's an enormous concept. And let me just uh, write the word. The, the Greek word is plerao. So let me just plerao. I guess that's a good transliteration. So plerao means fulfilled, right? And it means to fill up. Okay, this is a very important concept. That's why I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. And the idea is that, think about it like this. There, here's a cup and here's some water. And to fill up means to fill up to here, right? Um, for me, that's not as helpful. I think a better way to think about it is that um, this idea of fulfillment, is it's like a story, right? You begin a story, but then the story <coughs> needs a resolution. And so to fulfill the story is to tell the rest of the story, right? So it's like a narrative arc. And so it, let's say it stops here and it finishes here. Or I thought of another example, music. Actually, I'm really not good at music. I don't know why I'm using this illustration. But isn't there a case where, like, you play a note, one note, but then you're left hanging, and you need to hear the second note to, to get the resolution? Who knows what I'm talking about? Cadence? No, that's not. Huh? It's right. It's right. Thank you. Chelsea says I'm right. I'm not saying you're right. Right? Resol- some kind of... Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, people say it's resolution. Right. So it's like, a mu- like you, you play a single note, 
And if you just walk away, you're just like, ah, I'm by, play the rest of the second note, right? That's what fulfillment means, okay? So now we'll get to it, right? Um, so Matthew is all about fulfillment. It, Matthew contains the longest and most extensive quotes in the New Testament, in, I mean, in, in the Old Testament. I'll say the shortest would probably be Luke, uh, Matt, Mark, sorry. Mark contains uh, not as much. But let's just read uh, Matthew 2. Can I have uh, Eric read Matthew 2? And he rose and took the child. Oh, so who's he? Joseph. Okay. So remember, Joseph gets a dream. I know, I always intro. I'm sorry. So Joseph, <laughs> Joseph, just roll with me. Joseph gets a dream. Remember from the angel, um, uh, your life is in danger. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Why does Herod want to kill Jesus, by the way? Because here's, remember Herod, Herod says, I'm the Messiah. And then here's Jesus being born. We gotta, uh, there cannot be two messiahs. But in any case, so uh, Joseph gets a dream, so he's going to go down to Egypt. So keep reading. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and un- or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay. Uh, uh, Savannah, can I ask you to open the window? I don't know why I'm hot. Maybe I don't know if you're hot. But I'm, I'm smoking here. Um, and Tanya, can you open the door a little bit? Thank you. All right, so I want to particularly focus on the two Old Testament quotations, okay? Um, the first one is at the end of verse 15, right? Um, he's, uh, Matt, what does Matthew say? Matthew says, here is a baby Jesus going down to Egypt, right? And then um, he quotes Hosea 11. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. This has caused a huge firestorm of controversy, right? Because if you actually look at the Hosea reference, um, what is Hosea talking about? Well, first, what Old Testament event do you think is Hosea talking about? It should be fairly obvious. Jeff, if you look at me, if you give me eye contact, I will pounce on you like a tiger. <laughs> yes, so the Exodus, right? Exodus. Uh, if you guys remember Exodus 4.22, um, God sends Moses. Moses tells Pharaoh, let Israel, my son, free, right? So it's talking about ex- it's, it's talking about the Exodus. Now, here's the problem, right? Because this really, people really have a problem with how this fits in with prophecy. I always forget if it's C or S. I think it's both. It's both. This is the verb. All right, all right, right. <laughs> okay, so the way when I was growing up in church, I was taught this is what prophecy means. Prophecy is what? Prediction. Right? So you have a classic prediction, for example, Micah 5.2, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Boom. Prophecy, right? Why is that a problem here in Hosea 11? Is this a prophecy in the prediction sense? What is what is Hosea talking about? Is Hosea talking about the Messiah? No. Right? Hosea is talking about the Exodus. In fact, he's remembering the Exodus, and he's actually comforting. This, 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 um, if, uh, this is one of the minor prophets. Here's a quick like rule of thumb. Anytime it's one of the last chapters, that's like words of grace. 
anytime it's the earlier chapter, it's like words of judgment. So this is Hosea 11, near the end. So God's comforting his people. I love you. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you. I'm going to uh, 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 redeem you. And so he reminds them of the Exodus. Remember, I saved you in Exodus. Right? I, I brought you out of Egypt. You were my son. What does this have to do with the Messiah? Is this a prophecy, a prediction of the Messiah? The answer is no. So a lot of people, if you read the blogs, don't read the blogs, but if you read the <laughs> blogs, a lot of people say this is proof that the New Testament writers play fast and loose with their Old Testament. They're not respecting the Old Testament. Because one of the classic rules of, Old Te- of, of interpretation is you always interpret the text as it was meant to be interpreted by the original author. Did Hosea... Was Hosea saying, out of Egypt, I call my son? Oh, yes, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah would have to flee to Egypt because of King Herod. And almost everyone would say, no. Hosea was not thinking about that. So what's the answer? It goes back to this whole idea of fill up, okay? Um, um, we have to take a step back, and we have to ask, what is, what is the, the, the narrative arc that has been interrupted? And it's the story of Israel. Okay, so what's the story of Israel? God calls Israel out of Egypt, not just to be rescued, but what? To be a light to the nations, to worship and obey God. And through Israel, God would bless the nations. Through Israel, God would redeem the world, right? The, 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 the curse of Eden would be reversed. That was Israel's mission, but it failed because what? It went into exile, right? So it's kind of like that disharmonious first note. You know, you play the first note and you're waiting for the resolution, but it never comes, because that's the story of Israel. And so what Jesus is, is Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel. Jesus is the one true Israelite. And he, unlike Israel, corporate, you know, he, he, is, he is Israel as one person, embodiment of Israel. Unlike Israel, he obeys God. He loves God. Remember, he goes into, to be tempted in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, similar to Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years, right? But he obeys, unlike Israel. He he um, he 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 loves God. He blesses the nations. And he dies on the cross, and that's the point that Matthew is trying to make: that 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 Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole story of Israel. So, if you want to understand the concept of fulfillment, you have to take a huge step back, and you have to understand it in terms of the whole redemptive history. Any questions on that? I just answered a massive swirling controversy upon which much ink has been spilled. See? You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's go to the second quotation. Um, oh, so let me let me just talk about this. So, you know what this, this kind of fulfillment is called? Not prediction fulfillment. It's called typology. Right? So typology is, this is a type at, like a pattern and then he fulfills the pattern. He recapitulates or he relives out the pattern. Does that make sense? So that's the kind of prophecy we're talking about. That's the kind of prophecy almost always the gospel writers are actually referring to. Very rarely do they go to straight up prediction. This is so much more beautiful than this. Although that's good too. Okay. Oh, um, so, so when when the gospels say like um, Jesus, you know, fulfilled this, it's not prophecy. It's just kind of like a. It is prophecy. Oh. Oh, okay. okay. Then it's, it's, it's a different type of prophecy. It's the truest kind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there, there are two categories of prophecy. What did you learn before? Wash it from your mind. Okay. Rubbish. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, um, uh, second prophecy. Let me let me run through this very quickly. So what happens is uh, Herod hears about it. He, he <coughs> kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And then uh, uh, Matthew quotes this prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is actually talking about the exile. So what happened is, in the exile, many babies were killed. Not only that, but many babies were taken away. And then it's sort of personified in Rachel. Rachel is sort of the, one of the mothers of Israel. So Rachel's weeping. Like, she's so sad. So a lot of people say, oh, what, what kind of prophecy is this? It must be some sort of random loose association. Babies being killed in Bethlehem? Well, I remember babies were killed in, in the exile. Prophecy, boom. Answer is no, because again, it's typology. Jesus is the one true Israel. He's reliving all the experiences of Israel. Just as Israel went through the exile, just as um, this foreign, evil, terrible power, Babylon, tried to, tried to smash Israel and wipe it off the face of the earth, now we have a new one, Herod, He's trying to smash the true Israel. Same story. Recapitulation typology. Um, let's go to Gospel of Mark. Mark is widely... First of all, who was, written, what, what, who was it written by? Mark was written by um, uh, uh, John Mark. He's the uh, nephew of uh, Barnabas, right? And um, he, it's, according to church tradition history, it's, it's basically the testimony of Peter. Let me just move on. Uh, so it's widely considered the first gospel. It's the shortest gospel. Um, for a long time, people thought it was Matthew. A lot of uh, 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 why is Matthew? Because going back to um, uh, Winnie's question, why is Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament? A lot of people said, well, it's because Matthew was considered the first gospel. It was also because because of Matthew's whole idea on fulfillment, um, Matthew was thought of as the bridge between the Old and New Testaments, right? But if you want to put it in chronological order, probably Mark should be it, but. That's kind of just like, that's still scholarship I think you through. Alright, so it's largely written to a Gentile audience. How do you know that? Because Matthew, Mark has all kinds of asides throughout his, his writings. So for example, in Mark 7, we just preached on this, right? Where um, the whole controversy of the clean laws, uh, uh, Mark spends like three verses saying, oh, and so this is how it works. You know, Jews, they like to clean things. They, you know, they clean cups and utensils and even couches. They have to all be washed. Why would he ever explain that if it was a Jewish audience? He's explaining it to a, a Greek uh, Gentile audience. It's characterized by fast-paced action. This is why if you ever want to give somebody like a gospel to read, don't take them to John necessarily. Um, don't take them to Matthew, if, especially if they're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. I think a great place to begin would be Mark. Mark is so action-packed. It's like, it, like if, all, if any of the Gospels were made into a movie, Mark would be a good movie, right? Because very little dialogue, lots of action, right? One of his favorite, um, lots of miracles. One of his favorite expressions is immediately. He uses it like 32 times or something. We'll see it in our text as well. Uh, another distinctive of, of Mark is the Messianic secret. We talked about this a little bit. Um, you see this in all the Gospels, but especially in Mark. Jesus is always saying, shh, don't tell people I'm the Messiah, right? <laughs> The reason why is because, for several reasons, number one, if, if word got out that he's the Messiah, what's going to happen? Not just Herod the Great, but Romans are going to be like, what? You're the universal Jewish king? You're the, you're the Jewish Alexander the Great? Well, we got to smash you then. Right? So, shh. Don't tell people I'm the Messiah. Yeah? Wait, but didn't you say that Herod also claimed to be the Messiah, too? So why didn't that, that not offend the Roman government? Because Her- Herod is a weasel. So to the Romans, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm your man. I'm, I will serve you and obey you. And to the Jew- I'm the Messiah. I'm here to protect you. I love you guys. So, he's a weasel. Lies. All right. Um, uh, so, let's read Mark 1. Um, who am I? Who am I at? Uh, can I have Eric read it? 
Oh, I read it. Alright, Chelsea. Mark 1? Yeah. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Well, let me interrupt you right there. So, it's really interesting, right? Because if you look at Matthew, if you look at Luke, they have a long, long prologue. Like, for example, anytime you have Christmas, no one's ever going to preach from Mark. There's no, like, baby scenes of Jesus, right? All the baby stories are in Matthew and Luke, right? And Matthew and Luke both contain these long genealogies. Luke doesn't do that. Luke, we're in verse 9. What happened in verses 1 through 8? It's John the Baptist, right? Verse 9, immediately, boom, we're in the story. And we're not even at the beginning of Jesus' life. We're at what? We're at the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. That's like that's, that's at the seat of Mark. Keep going. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens. There's a word immediately, right? He saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, so just stay here for a second. <coughs> if, you, if you look at just those six verses, it's incredibly packed. So much is going on, right? For example, verses 12 through 13, just two verses, it talks about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. If you are familiar with Matthew and Luke's version of it, Matthew and Luke's version is like 40 verses. It's long, it's drawn out, right? There's actually three temptations. There's like this long dialogue with Satan. Mark skips all of that. It's just boom, 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 boom. Action, 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 action. Very little dialogue, just the sequence of events. That's kind of a distinctive of Mark. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go on to Luke. <clears throat> Luke is actually my fa- my personal favorite gospel. Um, can you have a favorite gospel if you're a minister of Christ? <laughs> That's almost sacrilege. But Luke is my favorite gospel. Um, a Luke oh, is written by Luke, who is uh, a doctor who's traveling around with Paul. At the beginning of his gospel account, he says, I've compiled eyewitness accounts and I want to present it to you in an orderly fashion. Um, and if you look at Luke, one of the, his distinctives, Luke agrees with all the Gospels, of course, so you know, I'm not saying this is the main message, but one of his distinctives is special attention to the poor, to the weak, and to the outsider. And so you have all kinds of unique stories that you only find in Luke, you don't find in any of the other Gospels. For example, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Of this Good Samaritan who goes, he sees a man on the road, he, he, on the road to Jericho, he, he saves, helps him, right? That's Luke. Parable of the ta- a Pharisee tax collector, right? Pharisee tax collector go up. Pharisee says, "Oh, I'm so righteous." Tax collector says, "Oh, I'm, don't even look at me. I'm a sinner." God says, uh, "Tax collector went down justified." Uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Here's this rich man. He lives his happy life. Lazarus is poor, a beggar, and then when they die, Lazarus goes to heaven. Rich man is in hell. Reverse, right? Um, story of Zacchaeus. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus. He's a little short guy. He's a. I think he's a tax collector as well. Um, Everyone hates him. He's so short. He climbs up a tree. He's so desperate to see Jesus. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, come down, I'm going to eat at your house today. That's Luke. Story of Christmas shepherds, right? Um, the nativity story, <coughs> shepherds were uh, low social outsiders. And, and who gets to hear the news first? It's the shepherds. That's Luke, right? So I love Luke. Um, one of the themes in Luke is reversal. Yes? I just want to clarify, because Paul never met Jesus well, he only did meet in the divinity, in only the in, his, in, in his resurrected, yeah, in his resurrected body. But then Luke, how it's it's again is a divine. 
So Luke, Luke, Luke never met. No, Luke, Luke never claims to have met Jesus. But then the story of what so you Luke, just said yeah. about someone, you know, try to come and listen to Jesus preaching, that is like a divine story, not a eyewitness story. Wait, I'm sorry, say it again? What, the, the, the story you just said? Zacchaeus. Oh, Zacchaeus. Right, or, or that's an <coughs> eyewitness. That, these are all eyewitness stories. Yeah, so Luke specifically says, these are, uh, I did very careful interviews of all the oh, eyewitnesses. So Luke interviews someone else who was Exactly, eyewitness. exactly, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm from, not, saying, not just Paul. Not just Paul, not just Paul. that's okay. correct, that's right, that's right. That's right. Um, but you'll see a lot of Paul's theology in Luke is what a lot of people say, right? So a lot of people say Luke is Paul's gospel and uh, Mark is Peter's gospel. But I mean, that's, I don't know if you, I mean, that's, us scholars need to do something, so we just, I think it's Okay. Um, so, re- so uh, one of the main themes of Luke is reversal, okay? So, uh, you know that famous statement, the first will be last, the last will be first? That statement, you see in all gospels, but Luke pounds it. He said, like virtually every story, sometimes it doesn't even quite fit. First will be last, the last will be first. That's <laughs> Luke, okay? And you see it, you see it so strongly in the Beatitudes. Famous, famous passage, right? Jesus goes Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Beatitudes just means the blessings. He says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Luke also has the Beatitudes. But his Beatitudes, nobody likes to preach from. Because it's spicy, it's tangy, it's, it's got a punch. So, let me just... Um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just draw some co- uh, contrast, okay? So, for example, the first beatitude, right? In Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Very famous, right? Go down to the first verse in Luke. Okay, listen. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What's the difference? Quickly. Because I have in spirit. In spirit. So, Matthew, Matthew says, blessed are you who are poor. But, you know, I'm ultimately talking about, like, your heart, right? Like, you have to have a, a heart of spiritual poverty before God, and you will be blessed. Luke, that... Blessed are the poor. <laughs> he doesn't... He doesn't help you, <laughs> so to speak, right? He, he, blessed are the poor. And then, go down to the last... To the, to the second paragraph. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So, Luke contains woes. Woes are like curses, like they're opposite of blessing. And he says... He doesn't say, woe to you who are rich in spirit, which would be true. He just says, woe to you who are rich. That's Luke, right? I don't know why, but I love Luke. He's so, like, he's such a flaming, like, like, you'll get the internet troll, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, go down to the fourth line in Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Go down to Luke, second line. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Notice he strips out sort of the spiritualized language. And he makes it very immediate that he's talking about poor people, hungry people, right? And if you go down to the second line in the second paragraph in the second paragraph of Luke, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Right? So you see that reversal. Um, we'll stop there. But you see the same thing over and over and over again. So any questions about Luke? Right. I do, uh, yes. How do we understand the differences in like content and 
like in instances that are shared among Gnostic gospels, for example, like this. Yeah. Like the content is similar, but yeah. the styles are different. Yeah. But it's not necessarily verbatim. Does that come? That's true. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people have problems with this. Yeah. Like, which did Jesus say? Did he say blessed are the poor in spirit, or did he say blessed are the poor? <coughs> a lot of people have done some tortured explanations. What well, Jesus said it twice. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Matthew wrote it down, right? Matthew the nerd there. And then Jesus said, and then Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. That's it, right? Um, and then and then Luke, well, you know, whoever Luke got it from, Luke writing it down. So the best way to understand it is that all the gospel writers are not journalists. They're not like capturing the camera, okay, shoot, all right, and then you're getting it. There's no such thing as an objective perspective. All of them are writing theology. All of them are pressing a case. And they're taking what Jesus says. And by the way, all of them are translating what Jesus said because Jesus spoke in Aramaic, right? So they're taking what Jesus says and they're translating it into the Greek, which already is itself, you're, you're not giving us straight up Jesus' words, but they're taking what Jesus taught them and then they're weaving a story. And it says all the time that Jesus took his disciples aside and he was teaching them, he was teaching them, he was teaching them. Right? <coughs> also, I mean, the, the first tortured explanation is kind of true. One of the traditions of rabbis is they repeat themselves, right? I mean, I, I totally love that. I would love to just preach the same sermon four times in a row <laughs> and then give another one, right? Because be, the fourth time would be really good, by the way. But um, <laughs> but that's what rabbis did. Rabbis would just teach the same thing over and over and over again. So they they heard variations of the same teaching again and again and again. But Jesus instructed them, and then Jesus said, I'm going to send you my spirit. So the spirit and Jesus, you can't separate them. They're one. So the spirit is teaching the, the apostles. Why do we have four gospels? That's another good question. Right? Why not just one account? It's like this beautiful gem. You turn it, you turn it, it looks... You get a new, fresh appreciation, but it's the same gem. But, and it's not just the Gospels, it's everywhere. For example, creation. We have two creation accounts, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. They're very different, the same story. Actually, if you expand it, you include some of the Psalms, there's like four creation accounts, right? So every story has a, what's called recapitulation. It happens over and over and over again. But each time it's a little different. So it's helpful to focus on the thrust, not so much the details of yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, 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 um, there's like uh, some works where they try to resolve all the like harmonization gospels. Garbage. I wouldn't even waste time reading it. Read Mark for Mark. Get the story of Mark. Read Luke for Luke. And then don't think about the contradictions because um, you can do that. I mean, like, for example, when Jesus resurrects, there was one angel in one gospel. There's two angels in, two, in another gospel. Which one is this? One or two? Well, one is the speaker, so they ignore the other guy. You know, two is a more accurate story. I would, you know, I think that's my personal opinion. But then non-Christian can look at that and go, well, you know, that's because you know when you interview more than one people, yeah, you get different story. Then you start suspecting how true, yeah, how true is the story? Well, I, I don't know too too much. I'm gonna just take my wife's word at it. According to my wife, who went to law school, she says that actually in, in a real criminal court case, if you have variations in testimony, it's actually, that's when you know it's true. If you, if you have, if you have uh, identical stories, then you know it's, they, they talk together and say, let's make sure our stories fit. Because, because, because all truth is perspectival. There is no objective truth, right? Right? Like, I'm looking at you in this direction. David Elm is looking at you in another direction. You see something different than I see. We see the same person, but we're seeing something slightly different. That's the nature of truth. And so, actually, I think our current environment is very friendly to the Gospels. It used to be the case that the four Gospels, the whole contradictions, harmonization, used to be a huge raging controversy 50 years ago. 
But we've moved beyond that because our culture has now realized there is no objective truth, there's only perspectival truth. And so now, that's no longer an issue. What people object to now in Christianity is the ethics of Christianity. So I think the biggest argument against Christianity right now is it's unethical. It's an evil, um, emotionally retarded religion that hates certain classes of people. All right. Uh, let's go to Gospel of John. Oh, dear. All right. John. We should just skip John, right? Because John is such an odd liar. He's like an oddball. He's, he's so strange. All right. So John is very different. Like, if, have you ever, have you guys ever had the red letter Bible, right? If you go to John, it's just all red, right? Because it's these long discourses, right? I wouldn't say rambly, but they're very long, right? And they're heavy on discourse. For example, on the feeding of the 5,000, in everyone, in, in, in um, uh, the, all three synoptics contain the feeding of the 5,000. I can't remember if John does or not. Or, uh, of course, John does. I'm just talking about John right now. So all four Gospels contain the feeding of the 5,000. In every one of the synoptics, it's very brief and very short, right? Um, but John, after the feeding of the 5,000, then John contains a passage that's like four times the length of the actual description of the feeding of the 5,000, in which Jesus goes into a long argument with people, and he starts saying crazy things, right? Like, I am the, I'm the true bread from heaven. You have to eat my, uh, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You don't have anything part of me. So that's what John gives us. John gives us... Um, really an outrageous Jesus. Jesus who says things that are real. He says things about himself that are just so high and elevated. And so one of the differences is that the synoptics show us Jesus through his, show us, show Jesus is God through his actions. John has Jesus saying, I'm God, right? So here are some statements that Jesus says in John. I and the Father are one. You don't find it in the synoptics. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, no, not synoptics. Before Abraham was, I am. That's Jesus in John, right? So Jesus in John. That's why a lot of times, because John was written at the very end, a lot of people say, oh, see, so there's this development, right? Like, oh, you know, John, John has the highest, you know, view of Jesus as God, and then the earlier Gospels don't. They all forget that the earliest uh, New Testament writings is the Epistles of Paul. Paul, Paul and Colossians 1, right? Jesus is like the pre-incarnate word. Okay. Um, Who wrote John? Uh, John, John, uh, John wrote John. Uh, John was the youngest disciple. He was the beloved disciple. Um, if you see, the, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, he's a disciple that's like leaning on Jesus in there. Who's <laughs> <laughs> actually a woman, right? Anyways, um, um, so he has all kinds of I am statements. Let me just go to uh, John fourteen. This is the upper room. So this is another thing that John is really famous for. In the upper room, Jesus is very important in all four gospels. But in the synoptics, it's relatively short. In the Gospel of John, it's very long. It's just like five-chapter, like long speech where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and everything. And Jesus says, I'm going to leave. And all the disciples are like, what are you doing? Why are you going to leave us? You know, stay with us. And here's what it says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am. So these are one of the I am statements, right? Jesus is very famous for that in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Right, just boom, right in your face. He doesn't say, hey, there's a way. I'm showing you the way. He's saying, I personally am the way. I'm not just telling you truths. I am personal truth. I'm not just telling you how to have life. There's no life outside of me. That's what John gives us, right? It's amazing. All right, Acts in three minutes. <laughs> Something that a lot of people don't know is that Acts is actually volume two of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both um, Acts, uh, Luke and Acts, and he meant it to be read together as a single work, right? 
And what does that tell us? It tells us that Luke was writing about the origins of Christianity. And it's not just the origins isn't just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as foundational as they are. It's also the beginning of the church. You have to put those together, right? So I really appreciate that. Remember the distinctive of Luke? What is the distinctive of Luke? His um, uh, uh, reaching out to outsiders, marginalized, weak, right, Gentiles. And you see that fulfilled in Acts. Because I would say the major thesis of Acts is what? That the gospel goes outside and explodes beyond uh, Jerusalem or Judea and it reaches out to the Gentiles, right? And so let me just go to um, Acts 10. Um, Let me just summarize the story for you, right? So here's Peter, right? Peter is just... You know, relaxing, he's having a, 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 a quiet evening of meditation. He has a vision. And in the vision, this, um, cl- uh, this uh, 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 cloth of really disgusting, unclean food is brought down. And God says, eat the food. And Peter's like, no, I would never eat that food. I'm a Jew. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I would never eat unclean food. God says, eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then shortly thereafter, um, Cornelius, a messenger from Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, right? <laughs> Roman, okay? Um, he comes. He's unclean. Unclean on multiple levels. He's a hated uh, occupying soldier. And then Peter goes and Cornelius tells him the story. So I, was, I had this vision from God that your prayers have been answered and someone's going to come and carry the gospel. And what does Peter say all the way at the end? So Peter opened his mouth and said, Surely I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That is, I think, the thesis of Acts, which is that the gospel breaks down these racial ethnic barriers. It goes, it smashes past the Jewish particularities, the clean laws, and so forth. That's why huge controversy over circumcision, right? Because circumcision is one of the Jewish identity marks. All of that is smashed. The gospel goes out to the Gentiles, and then the Acts ends in Rome, at the, the, the seat of foreign power, right? That's why, uh, uh, for example, P, uh, Paul's conversion, you know, Paul, the road to Jericho, three times is repeated in Acts. You know why? Anytime it's repeated multiple times, super important. Why is it super important? Because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's the whole story. Now, give me one minute. Oh, I can't do this in one minute. But there's a whole issue of precedence, which is how much of Acts is a model for us today. Oh, I would love to do this. It's like a 15-minute presentation. But I will I'll stop. Any quick last questions? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible privilege incredible joy to dive into your word. I pray that this would be an appetizer. This would just uh, wet um, um, wet our appetites to want to dive in, want to read the Gospels, to want to know you and love you, and, and to believe in you more deeply. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Right, thank you. Thank you.